Mr. Lundegaard, sorry to bother you again. Can I come in? Yeah, no, I'm kind of, I'm uh, kind of busy here. I understand. I'll keep it real short then. I'm on my way out of town, but I was wondering, do you mind if I sit down? Carrying a bit of a load here. No. I... Yeah, it's this vehicle I asked you about yesterday. I was just wondering. Yeah, like I told you, we haven't had any vehicles go missing. Okay. Are you sure? Because, I mean, how do you know? Because, see, the crime I'm investigating, the perpetrators were driving a car with dealer plates, and they called someone who works here, so it'd be quite a coincidence if they weren't, you know, connected. Yeah, I see. So, how do you... Have you done any kind of inventory recently? The car's not from our lot, ma'am. But how do you know that for sure without doing a... Well, I would know. I'm the executive sales manager. Yeah, but I understand. We run a pretty tight ship here. I know, but... Well, how do they establish that, sir? I mean, are the cars counted daily, or what kind of a routine here? Ma'am, I answered your question. I'm sorry, sir? Ma'am, I answered your question. I answered the darn... I'm cooperating here, and there, uh, there's no... Uh... Sir, you have no call to get snippy with me. I'm just doing my job here. I'm... <laughs> I'm not... Uh... I I'm not arguing here. I'm cooperating, and there's no, we're doing all we can. Stuff we've seen. This is your host, James Kent, and with me is Bill Muir. And we are going to tackle, I can't believe it, that we are in a part five of Criterion's Neo Noir. We're actually almost covered all of the movies, um, but we just didn't want to, like, you know, short shrift anything. So here we are with a part five. I guess this will give us an opportunity to cover the last couple of movies and also dive into some other neo noirs uh, that Criterion Channel didn't really go into because I think that they really kind of stopped in the almost mid 90s for the most part, and then left out a whole chunk. <laughs> right. Hey, whoa, there it is. Whoa. There, there's Billy. Billy's in. He's here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there he is. Hello, Jimmy. Nice <laughs> to speak to you again for part five. Yes. Hello, Billy. You're just giddy already here on the morning. Oh, uh, yes. Well, it's weird is that by the time you, the listener, hears this, uh, we'll have recorded all five of these parts. But uh, right now, as we speak, I think only part two has been released. I'm still editing part three, and then there's part four sitting there in the can. Um, but uh, we, we were trying to capture Billy while we have him before he gets just completely busy. Yeah. Well, I'm and I'm very happy to be uh, talking about this. So thank you, Jimmy. Mind you, you are busy, but you're you're squeezing some time in Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> but your I'm, time you know. to squeeze is getting tinier and tinier. <laughs> so this could be the last time I talk to you for a show for a while. Right. Right. But, you know, hopefully uh, things will work out, you know. But, well, you uh, know, just like Sean Connery, never say never again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if the if the price is right, I'll, I'll do Bond again. <laughs> 
but it really messed me up as a kid because I was just getting into Bond, and then it's like, yeah, but why aren't why don't we have like all the same types of side characters? And where's the music? And why does it sound very eighty? I couldn't figure it out. Yeah, I mean, it was it was very you know why Klaus is this Marie, just Klaus like Thunder Maria Brandauer? Yes, yeah. Maria Brandauer. <laughs> he was pretty good in it though, right? He was, and um, he was a good villain. And they play a video game and I know poker that's together. like the, how many times have we seen that scene? Right? There's that, and then we there's watch also. Um, him uh, uh, f- having a fist fight with um, the guy who um, I forget the actor's name, but he he's the Nazi who Indiana Jones is the fist fight with in the um, yeah. Well, that airplane. guy was a, that guy was a, a a stunt guy. Like he's That's he's right. in tons and Barry of Lin- and Barry Lyndon as well. He has the the fist fight. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> We need a guy for some uh, fist fight action. Let's get That's that guy right. in there. That's right. With it, with an incredibly like garish scar <sighs> on his arm. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All and, right. So and, that. Oh, oh, it, what? 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 Nope, nope. Nope. Go ahead. Go ahead. No. 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 You're about to say something, Billy. Let me no. Hear just, you. But it's. Uh, you're. You're absolutely right. What's What's hilarious though is just the. Um, uh, the way that they took Thunderball for some reason that the rights had, you know, kind of lapsed yes. and they were able to just, you know, completely remake it. Hilarious. Well, because so. they didn't at the time, it was sort of like you couldn't create a James Bond story without it being one of the books. And right. of course, now that when they ran out of books, now they, you know, they will make new stories <laughs> and mm-hmm. arguably they're not as good. But uh, we don't know. We'll have to wait for this new Bond movie, which is Coming out in theaters just in time for things to close up again, probably. (laughs) Just when we thought it was safe to go back to the theater. (laughs) COVID-2. You going to work on the trailer for that? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, Oh, boy. I know. But just when you thought it was safe to take your mask off. So Jimmy, when when did where did we leave off? I you do you know or you just is that a lead in to get this other? Yeah, that's a lead. It's a lead. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. Okay. Well, we we were arguing back and forth. I did finally see Swoon. Oh, 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 oh just to push I wish back. We, I'm glad I didn't put money on that bet because I swore that you weren't going to watch it. But you well, said you're going to yeah. prove me wrong. Yeah. Actually, well, you see, that's that's how you make that's how you motivate Billy. Okay. okay. Here's <laughs> the thing. I think this is good that you saw that, and I think we should talk about it again because something interesting happened. Um, with the with the next movie in order that okay. I had not seen in like you know twenty something years, and right. I think that there's an overall theme that we keep talking about episode after episode, and it, this is this uh the the neo noir genre and how it deals with uh, homosexuality, right, and kind of and then not in a good way, and so. If we look back at Swoon, which again, 1992, there were very, very few films that tackled um, these issues at all. Right. And so anything that was focused on uh, homosexuality in any way, that that was, you know, kind of landmark. Um, Right. So the fact that we have, I guess, in this neo noir, two characters um, who are—I guess they're not out; they're they're they're, they're closeted, right, in their time. But that they live kind of—I uh, guess we get a, a peek inside of what that life was like in the 1920s, right, during the Leopold and Loeb uh, murders, and you know, um, you know, generally speaking, obviously Leopold and Loeb not um, very sympathetic. You know, murdering no. a, a teenage boy, 
Um, but I, I think what the film does, uh, what I would say is interesting about it is the way that it sort of unpacks um, the um, Leopold and Loeb being gay and how that was how society viewed it at the time as a mental aberration. Right. Well, it was I think one of the fascinating things is, and this is where I thought with the comparisons with the onion field, when they get into the court, mm-hmm. uh, there's that thing where they're getting very descriptive about their sexual encounters and yes. details. And like the judge, will like, clear all the women from the court and including the stenographer was not allowed to take notes because we can't have our women hearing such lurid details. Right. And, and, and that's where I, I think the film is, um, you know, uh, particularly interesting. As, as I said, you, you, your critique of the film, I thought was pretty on, on point that it did feel, you, you felt the constraints, the budget and the kind of some of the more experimental things um, felt very student filmy, very obsession perfume ad kind well, of. Didn't it uh, feel like kind of like a graduate film from NYU? I know that some people have never been to film school and had to sit through some of these exercises that we did. Um, yeah, I, I, I would, you know, part of it had to do with the sound, I think. You well, know, that, sure. That, that was, yes. that was, that's one thing that like always immediately brings is when you hear just the quality of the sound um, that that immediately brings me back to uh, a kind of sense memory of that, yes. you know? Yeah. Yeah. There is a weird way of when these very, very low budget films, uh, how they look and sound that just you wonder what goes on in like a mainstream production that makes them feel like movies and these feel like some kind of student exercise. It's very often, I would say, sound is like a huge thing that we're aware of and yet we're not aware of it. Um, and and But I do have to say, I mean, I, I think given the budget constraints that they likely had, I thought that they did a very interesting use of archival footage and, yeah. you know, um, certain things. So, so look, I, I finally feel about the film is that um, it's – Better than I was led to believe by you. (laughs) Thank you. Well, but I'm looking at it. So I'm not, I wasn't watching the film through an LGBTQ plus lens. I was looking at it from the standpoint of a neo-noir. And I felt that when I look at it from the neo-noir standpoint, it wasn't very successful. I guess it just, it did push my my notion of what a neo-noir is supposed to be. Yes, and I think it does in the sense that um, they're they're very much you know you have often a noir the kind of traditional noir it's you know very often you know a couple who is looking to kind of pull some sort of heist caper however you want to put it obviously double identity is something that comes to mind immediately and kind of following it through you know I think noir is always about kind of peeling back the Band-Aid to kind of look what's our, like turning over a rock to see the kind of seedy underbelly of American <laughs> society. And I think that's sort of uh, one quality that this has. The seedy side of the wealthy in Chicago. Yes. In yes. The early part of the 1900s. Right. Do you know, the funny thing is that I remember reading one time that Leopold and Loeb, when they were looking for someone who they were going to kill, uh, you know that when they were where they were scouting it out, one person that they looked at that they were going to do was William Sean, 
uh, Wallace Shawn's father, who later became the editor of The New Yorker, that he was somebody like he was one of on their list of people who they were looking to possibly do this to. Creepy. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, and, you know, the whole idea of like this murder, like it's really creepy. And then, you know, the details that happened in the in the prison, uh, those are the, like, you know, if you actually go in and read about the whole Leopold and Loeb story, they do follow the details to the letter. Right. Um, so that was kind of uh, interesting. At any rate, now we are moving in to, well, Suture was in between and we did talk about right. that, but then that's when we left off with Suture. So the next film on the Criterion's list was uh, The Last Seduction in 1990, well, 93 slash 94 release, depending on, you know, where you go. And it was uh, directed by John Dahl and... The big thing at the time on this movie, this was interesting, and it's interesting in the, the lens of today where movies are now being streamed at the same time as in the theaters, possibly you know because of the pandemic and that line between watching something at home and does it count the same way as if a movie is released first is getting super blurred. Right. But there was a, a big dust-up is The Last Seduction and another movie that John Dahl did, Red Rock uh, West. Red Rock West, another noir. Yeah. These were two films that were released around the same time. They were on cable first, uh, like either HBO, Cinemax, or Showtime. I can't remember which. Yeah. I, I was, it, was, it, was it cable or did it somehow – or was it in Blockbuster or something? I forget exactly what it was cable. It was cable in the United States. I think it got distribution – Globally, got some distribution deals, and so it played there. But then in the United States, it couldn't get a distribution. It got picked up, and why? I think that critics tended to like both of them. Yes. And suddenly, it was getting a theatrical release, and it was a very low budget company that was like putting out, you know, like Red Shoe Diary type stuff. And <laughs> right, 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 that's right, what right. those producers really uh, were investing in. But John Dahl kind of elevated both of those films beyond that. Right? Did 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 one like come out? Like I'm, I forget, did one get targeted first or like highlighted first by critics, and then the other Red one Rock of- West did right, right, and it got a the- theatrical release. But then what happened with the Last Seduction is that critics really uh, gravitated towards the big main performance in the movie. Well, Linda Fiorentino's performance is is lots of fun. Well, did you see the movie again or no? I haven't. I okay. haven't seen it again. I, I, now, I watched the film. I, w- I saw the film in the theater, right? Right. Um, again, I don't – it was funny because it was – it was like something that – maybe it was I didn't have the, the station, Cinemax or something, and it was showing. And then it, when it put it in theaters, I'd heard all about her performance. And then they were really trying to push her for possible Oscar consideration, but the Oscars yes. with their rules said, no way, she cannot be considered. Right. And so – I saw The Last Deduction in the theater, and I thought it was fantastic, and I thought she was great. And then I last saw it uh, maybe a couple years later on cable, you know, in Cinemax or something, or maybe I even rented it or something with my then-girlfriend. And so we're talking, you know, good 25 years since I saw The Last Seduction. Right. And watching it again got some kind of interesting thoughts Okay, I'm curious. Go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> it's very curious. Yes. Um, so the first thing is that it would be a great. It's if I'm looking at the pairings, it is in uh, just a logical pairing with Body Heat. 
Okay, yes, absolutely. Similar in sort of the noir murder type plot. Mm-hmm. Similar in the idea that there's a woman who's dealing with a husband that she wants to get rid of. And changed identities, kind of. And changed identities. And uh, so it's it's a great, great, great uh, pairing with Body Heat. But flipped on the other side is that we're, we know that Linda Florentino's the bad character. Right. It's, I mean, because she's playing it right out front. There's no, there's no artifice about it. There's no, whereas we talked about with Body Heat and Kathleen Turner's performance, right. Then, yes, I found that the movie is a lot more of a comedy than I remembered it being. Yes. I think that I thought of it was devilishly wicked back in the day. <laughs> and now I look at it as, uh, and I've done some reading on it, is that the, the producers, uh, again, they thought they were getting, you know, they were getting a little bit of... Uh, Red Shoe Diary smut, and there was a scene that John Dahl had filmed with her having uh, sex, wearing her suspenders, and the suspenders covering up her her breasts, and had right. a look. and and they actually saw that and they said, "What the hell is this? Are you guys trying to make an art movie?" And they're like, <laughs> well, "No, we swear we're not." They're like, "You're trying to make an art movie. That, none of that. That scene has to go." And that's exactly what John Dahl was up against. Okay. Right. Um, and I thought that's pretty fascinating that they saw that and they freaked out. They're like, this is a, are you trying to make an art movie? <laughs> no, they wanted you know, the straight, uh, you know, the straight crappy, uh, low grade sex. And right. <laughs> also I was reminded of just how low budget and early nineties, low budget this movie was, uh, including this uh, score that was Definitely like sort of a jazzy neo-noir score, but also very low budgety score. And it really made it feel at times it had that same sort of weird student filming <laughs> feel to it, right. which I don't think I picked up on before, but I definitely picked up on it this time. So that was something that grabbed me. And then the the plot why I while I found it very wicked at the begin when I first saw the movie, I did find it a little far fetched and ridiculous to buy into. Yeah, this yeah, time around. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and I didn't find I, I I found that her performance was enjoyable, but I didn't actually go. Oh man, Linda Fiorentino should have been nominated for an Oscar. Absolutely, like, I, just, I, I can. No, I, I said shouldn't. See. No, no, no. I hear you. I that's I, I get. It. I mean, I remember her performance. It was, you know, that's the thing that really sold it. And she got, you know, um, there there was a brief, 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 brief revival of Linda Fiorentino after this because she had disappeared. I remember reading something that she said uh, the reason she did the movie was that she had a fifty thousand dollar Amex bill, and <laughs> um, and then she went and did Jade. We spoke last time, I think, about William Friedkin and about like how great William Friedkin's To Live and Die in L.A. is. And then he does, I don't know if you remember, Jade, which is a noirish uh, vehicle for David Caruso, <laughs> written by Joe Esterhaus. Yes, so. yes, yes, we were to get the trifecta. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was when Caruso thought he was all that in a bag of chips and uh, yeah, he cashed yeah. in all his chips on Jade. Yeah. <laughs> And then uh, Linda Fiorentino then worked on uh, the Men in Black movie. And, right. Okay. Uh, yeah, 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 apparently, yeah. I mean, again, something didn't go well there, apparently. And then also, you know, she worked on that uh, awful Kevin Smith movie, Dog Crap. I mean, Dogma. <laughs> and uh, something didn't go well there either. Well, but at any rate, but I mean, she was, she was able, she had a brief, really, this revived her career. 
Yeah, it did. And it made, well, it made you take notice. And, uh, you know, I mean, again, I, uh, you know, she was, uh, the great Kiki Bridges in, in uh, after hours, after hours, which I loved. And of course she was, uh, you know, great in, uh, vision quest, vision quest, wrestling movie. Yeah. There you go. So anyways, the movie didn't work as well for me though. I mean, you definitely, it's, it's fun at times, even though it's just ridiculous, but then, you know, so every movie like this, right, with the body has to have a dupe, a stooge that uh, yes. that has to be willing to be taken in. And that is, of course, Peter Berg. Peter Berg. <laughs> now, this guy, right? So this is the, the, the I mean, Peter Berg, you know, he's just this really great director. I mean, he did, uh, you know, uh, Wild Strawberries, Summer with Monica. Oh, wait a minute. That's Igmar Bergman. <laughs> Sorry. No, Peter Berg. Oh, but he's still a good director. He did Patriot's Day. Um, <laughs> didn't, he, didn't he do Battleship, too? <laughs> As well. Peter Berg. This is how I know you're not living in Massachusetts anymore to make jokes about Patriot's Day. No, okay, no, 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 and it was insanity those few days. Okay, I, I, I had that particular day off, and I had my um, oldest son. He was very little then, and we went to Lexington for the reenactment that morning. Right, that's what they do on, on uh, Patriots Day. They have the reenactment of uh, the Patriots versus the British, right? right? And I thought that would be fun to go and see him with. So my, so my mom went, and, and my, my oldest i think actually my youngest was there too we were like when it was pushing no no maybe he was at daycare that day but i i had the day off and there was some thought about me taking my son to go to the boston marathon so he could see that and Mm. my whole thing was if i was going to take him there i would take him to the finish line (laughs) because that's where we go however we ended up doing something else uh instead so that so we didn't go and when we got back from the other thing i couldn't get onto my internet i was checking some stuff uh for for work even though i had the day off and i couldn't get logged in and i was like what's going on and Suddenly, you know, I find out all of this stuff had just happened like 45 minutes before I got home. Right. And right. the, but the next few days were so surreal there. And the day where they had, you know, with the shootout and then the morning and the two suspects yep. the, the, and the other suspects like running around Watertown and everything was shut down. I was going to go to work that day. Uh, I'm heading to work and there's like no cars on the highway. And I'm hearing that everything's getting shut down. I get to work and nobody could get to work. Uh, and so I actually went home before they shut the pike down. I mean, it was insanity. So uh, we knew every single detail of that movie so well. So sure, was I excited to see a movie about Patriots Day? <laughs> Absolutely was. What do we get is instead is Marky Mark. I'm sorry, Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> he's this guy. And they like, literally, they take him and and he's like, where's Waldo? They put Mark Wahlberg in every aspect every of the of movie footage. where suddenly they find a way for him to be in every place. And why is he in Watertown? We don't know, the but selling, he's there. The and, selling and, yeah, of Patriots Day. <laughs> it's like, and it's so ridiculous. So it was, it made me angry. It was an anger-inducing thing that they would take this story and that Mark would, would Wahlberg would be involved in it. It was so awful. That's the movie that should have been done like a Paul Greengrass approach. 
Yeah. And so maybe Mark Wahlberg could have a role in it, but it would have been way better. But again, when you're in the hands of director Peter Berg. That's right. That's right. Uh, now cries and whispers. <laughs> yeah, cries and whispers, <laughs> Peter Berg. I mean, Igmar Bergman. Anyway, so, you know, he he didn't, I guess he decided to make, to make his career as a director, but he was an interesting actor, I think. Yes. And he actually plays a good dupe, I think, in this. He, he does. He has, you know. And of course, it's like, it's the one hand, it's like, why would she ever be with like a guy like him? And it is ridiculous, but that's where he's well, so there's stupid. Moment he I remember know. in the beginning is that she's just like in the barge and she's like, and she's like, yeah, you'll do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she's so great. And I think that's what it was, what was cool at the time was, and this is where the neo noir, right, where it subverts the genre is you didn't see a femme fatale up front being also the main character of the story and just being so like confident in her way to like handle men and kind right. of abuse them and use them as a tool. And also uh, the sexuality is that you're, you know, you get the flip the script of guys who are, you know, having sex with women. She was, you know, off to get laid. And, and she was using her sexuality, you know, obviously um, in, in, a, in a way that um, to, to give her strength, to give her power. It was very, very interesting. Yes. But now, and you may have forgotten about this because I certainly had, I didn't quite remember how it all unfolded at the end. Right. And, you know, you had made, uh, you know, Bill Pullman, right? He plays her husband that she steals the money from and uh, right. and there's a great kind of cat and mouse going on throughout the movie with the two of them and he's going to play a, a, a role in an upcoming neo-noir that I'm going to mention once we move beyond Criterion a little bit but I really enjoy his character in this but in the end right she's trying to get Peter Berg to kill her husband and mm -hmm. then the two of them figure out what what's going on and then she shows up and she does something to Bill Pullman's character to kind of murder him, but then she's going to pin the blame on Peter Berg, right. and where the where it becomes very problematic. I was, I was kind of surprised, and it really ties in what I was mentioning at the beginning of this episode that we've kind of been uh, a, a sort of a, a, a current in all these neo noir movies is the treatment of the LGBTQ plus right themes is that she's able to push Peter Berg's buttons because she found out the secret of his marriage where right. he accidentally married someone who was trans. Yes. And in because of that and her kind of pushing his buttons, she goads him into raping her. Yes. Uh, raping Linda Fiorentino while she's able to get the phone going she on. She calls 911. the police yeah. and sets and him up. Yeah, it feels very scripted watching it now. It felt scripted then. Yeah, even though I think the first time I watched it, I was like, you know, kind of like, whoa. But what I realized is it's this theme of this idea of the transphobia and that the masculinity and that by using this plot device, he would be so enraged that then he would take out revenge on this woman who tried to get him to kill somebody and he would violently rape her from behind. Right. Yeah, look, it's it's problematic. It's definitely look, it's definitely problematic. I was thinking about that. But part of the thing that's interesting is the way that she seems to kind of understand masculinity and how to 
kind of like attack it, you know, and it's, it's, um, uh, but it's definitely, I, I mean, it's, it seems all part of her character, but yet at the same time, yeah, problematic. I would well, say. Well, because we don't know it at the time because there's a scene in the bar that, th- that this bar is like a character in the movie that they keep coming to and where a lot of the action kind of unfolds. And Peter Berg's best friend tries to tell him that she tried to get a secret out of him. And then Peter Berg you know, punches the friend. And, and of course, you think, you think he punches him for one reason because he's just jealous. But it turns out that... He wouldn't believe that his friend would ever reveal what he ended up revealing. And we, of course, you know, as, as it all unfolds in a nice little fun scripted moment. Um, right. But uh, again, problematic. Now, here's an interesting thing. This is what I also like watching some of these movies is you never know which actor, actress, whatever is going to show up in a movie like this that Correct. then comes on to fame and fortune later. And one of Peter Berg's buddies is Schrader Brow. <laughs> Dean Norris from Breaking Bad, the Schrader. I, I, I completely. That's. I, did, uh, I was shocked as a young, that. young, young Schrader brow is uh, in the bar as one of the friends, not not the friend that he punches, but the other friend. So right. I, I was like, "Whoa, hey, it's the Schrader brow." <laughs> <laughs> well, he's he's in um, Total Recall. He is? Yeah, wow. In the Look Arnold version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Arnold. That's, I, let's, let's not talk about this. I Colin yeah. Farrell in the other yes, version or yeah, something. Yeah, yes. Yeah. The, the casting directors, they keep saying, Colin Farrell. I think the people like him, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't. That phone booth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They try to make him a thing. Now, I think he's like, as he gotten older, he, he's calmed down a little bit uh, and he picks better, like more artsy roles. I kind of like him a little bit more. Yeah, me too. Okay, so look, we're not going to spend huge amounts of time running through the the, the, the cavalcade of films. Late 90s, Neonor. Yeah, that that, uh, that Criterion didn't tackle. And again, you know, I mean, they already had 26 movies, but it's funny how they didn't really get into – I thought they might have a a lot more between uh, Last Seduction and their last film. But Mm -hmm. here's just some that people – would think of. Uh, we mentioned Devil in a Blue Dress last episode. Yep. And 1995, you had like a neo-noir classic, right? Heat. Absolutely. Yep. Wonderful. Another film. Uh, and it's a director that kind of, he likes neo-noir and, and he definitely tackles neo-noir in several films is uh, Steven Soderbergh's The Underneath. And Jimmy, I actually, that's on the list. And I, um, you know, full disclosure, I did, I've never seen it. Well, we're not going to talk about it. I remember. Just, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. But I'm just, I, I, I'm actually very intrigued to check it out because I remember it getting very positive reviews at the time. I don't think it's a great film, but it's interesting. Right. You know, and it's at a time where Soderbergh hadn't become Soderbergh yet. You know what I mean? Like he'd only it made a before few he reinvented himself. It really is like um, when out of sight happens is when he's like his apotheosis exactly. and the limey. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have you on the show just to hear you say things like apotheosis. Like apotheosis. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, another filmmaking duo that just loves the neo-noir, and they did include, of course, their first film, Blood Simple. We, we didn't really talk about Blood Simple too much. We talked a little, no. a little bit because, you know, there's so much has already been said about it. Right. But the Coen brothers, their masterpiece, Fargo, 1996. Yep. Classic neo-noir. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, you got to see it. And it's it, to me, it's, it's such a great because when you think of the neo-noir genre and how it just redoes so many of the things, mm-hmm. 
that's you know that's what's so great about it. Another film that kind of gets lost in the shuffle of like so-called pulp fiction clones. That's how I associate this film is that it's one of the films that came in the aftermath of pulp fiction. Sorry, go yeah, ahead. I, I, right. Well, you might want to have said that after I told the title so people know what we're talking about. <laughs> that's okay, Billy. We're, you're still in training. <laughs> Uh, you'll get there. I'm a probationer. Uh, what do you want? I'm yeah, on probation here. You know? yes. <laughs> Try to ruin my Peter Berg joke earlier. <laughs> For you, the audience, I think I've cut it out so that you will enjoy the joke before Billy ruined it. Before I step on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, there's a film that I actually really liked a lot. It's called Two Days in the Valley. Yeah. No, it was, it was, I mean, I just remember being kind of good, trashy fun. Well, what it also did is... It, and it's funny, the same weekend, this person debuts with two movies that she's in, this Two Days in the Valley, and then that same weekend it came out was That Thing You Do, and that's Charlize Theron. Yes, this put her on the map. And man, when I watched the Two Valleys, I was like, who the hell is that? Because everybody remembers this fight between her and what's her name from Lois and Clark, you know? Yeah, and Wisteria Lane. Wisteria there. Lane, yes, yes, yes. Everyone yeah, remembers that. Yeah. Everybody remembers that, but they don't remember the actress's name, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but I know who you're talking about. Yes, yeah, yes, but, yes. Uh, but also, you know, she was like a hit woman with James Spader, and I think that was actually a, the first time that we got a a, a kind of a new look at, at Spader, like mid '90s right. Spader. He's like this cool dude with the the black rim glasses, which mm-hmm. really was not a thing then. But then, you know, between that and Austin Powers, man, the, <laughs> the, the dark rim glasses were back, and they never left. Terry Hatcher, <laughs> Terry Hatcher. Thank that's the you. Actress. We gave Bill time to to research yeah. that. <laughs> Yeah, yes. <laughs> uh, okay, so this is crazy. It's 1997, a year later, tons of neo-noirs. And yes. we've mentioned, we've definitely, we've mentioned in passing a bunch of them. One I had mentioned, which uh, I think would be a great addition to this criterion for the LGBTQ plus uh, theme is Bound. Yes. That is uh, 1997. Uh, Jackie Brown is definitely a neo-noir, Tarantino. Yep. And I, of course, you know, again, with that, that, those, those are like movies we don't have to talk about too much because everybody's talked about them. But uh, Yeah, well, you've spoken about it on the show before. And I think what you said about Jackie Brown is really true is that it's one of these films that the more you watch it, the better it gets. I've seen that movie more than any other Tarantino film, which is weird because it's the one that at the time I, I liked the least. I remember you were not into it. Yeah, huge reevaluation, um, and it's a great movie. L.A. Confidential, Curtis Hansen, much better than The Bedroom Window. <laughs> That's right. Like, you can't even believe it's the same guy made it. That's, uh, you know what? If we had Steve Gutenberg as Bud White, that would be great. Oh, <laughs> oh geez. Okay. Uh, that's one of those films where I saw the commercial. It was maybe hard to market because it was not a very big box office film. Um, it's one of those that people found afterwards and were like, oh, my God, it's as good as the critics said. And I've read the book and the book, I, how they were able to turn that book into this. It's amazing. I mean, and I, that's the thing is that uh, that that was sort of the gateway drug for getting into Elroy for me in general. Yeah, interesting. You know? Yeah, he has a very interesting style of writing, but it's great new noir. And Lost Highway, David Lynch is another guy who loves the neo-noir movies. Yes, that's, you know, my my favorite bit in that, of course, is the I'm in your house right now. Oh, well, that's a great creepy <laughs> Robert scene. Robert Blake. Uh, yes. Uh, it got creepier, of course, afterwards with Robert Blake basically being a killer. Yes. Uh, so, you know, it's funny, we didn't mention this in the 80s, of course, uh, Blue Velvet is a classic neo-noir. Right, absolutely. And and one film also that um, I think you had listed was U-Turn. 
I haven't got to uh, jumping. Uh, well, you can mention. Yes, I, I, that was going to be the next one on the list, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Maybe we got to stop doing these episodes. <laughs> getting a little punchy. But yes, U-Turn, which I saw in the theater. I did not. I actually saw this thing in the theater, and I loved the way it was shot. It was like the cross-processing and... Uh, was Robert Richardson shot this one too, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. With Var- yeah Ollie Stone, the guy, you know. Ollie Stone. Um, Ollie it's, Stone. Not a, it's not a great, it's kind of like, if I was going to pair U-Turn with a movie, I'd probably pair it with The Hotspot. Uh, I would say that, or actually even has kind of elements that are kind of similar to um, uh, The Last Seduction. A little bit. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you got the U-turn. So you want to do a nineteen ninety seven? You know why? You got the U-turn. You got the Jackie Brown. You got the Lost Highway, LA Confidential, and you, and you ended up with the Bound. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what kind of. I'm just doing a character. Are you going? Are you going to curate a nineteen ninety seven neo noir year list? There you, you go. Any, I like that. Do you got any more ninety sevens before? Because now you can. You're free to go because I've finished all the ninety nine. So, no, no, Jimmy, Jimmy, I'm just trying to be a team player guy. I'm just, you know, I'm just hey, trying guys. to move things along. Okay. Hey, I mean, oh, otherwise, the, otherwise it's going to be a part six. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't. No, I'm watching the time. We're going to be, oh yeah, shoot. Before you know it. All right. We're going to have to move. You can see. All right. Well, because we have two more, we have two, we have, we have uh, one more Criterion movie we got to talk about. All right. Okay. All right. All so right, I'm just going right. to give out some list of, I'm just going to list out some stuff. Okay. How about that? Okay. All right. 1998. Uh, I I feel like I need to rewatch it. I didn't really think it was that great, but I saw it in the theater, and it is a neo noir. Uh, maybe it's good for a rediscovery. Is Palmetto? Never seen it. Okay, of course, ninety eight, the the classic, one of my favorite neo noirs of all time, The Big Lebowski. Oh boy, we could go on. I mean, that just all the elements it takes. You know, uh, as we we talked about it, kind of um, goofing on, you know, kind of incestuous themes in noir, the idea that like what you see, um, we talked about Cutter, like Cutter's way that you have one character who's like so passive. (laughs) And I also would even kind of compare it to there was a neo-noir that we never discussed, uh, Who'll Stop the Rain with Nick Nolte and Michael Moriarty, which I'm a big fan of. I've never um, seen 1978, it. Carl Rice. I, you read the book, Dog Soldiers, that I gave to you, which by Robert Stone, it's based on that, won the National Book Award in the 70s. Sure, it, I read um, it. <laughs> <laughs> I think you gave it to somebody else. No, you you definitely you definitely read it. But, um, um, yeah, yeah, you may well, definitely you, have given it to me, but I don't know if I read it. But you you have it's a very it's a very interesting kind of study <laughs> that and cutters. <laughs> you got me going now. All right, all right. I'm gonna move his blog. Okay, it's an interesting movie. But in the sense that you have you have one character who is so passive, and and Jeff Bridges in the Big Lebowski is so passive. He's a pacifist, you know. <laughs> and then you have a character who's dynamic and makes things happen. Um, you know, Walter Sobchak. <laughs> yeah, we bring and- guns. <laughs> That's right. Well, you can't have an adventure without a gun, and uh, it's just it's um it's a great, 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 great film. I know, you know, it's been mentioned on our program many times, but yet it's never been like a full focus. And I think that's partly is that some movies, uh, the way that I think Teal and I kind of tackle them is that some movies are so great. Everybody's talked about them. So it doesn't make any sense to do like a whole focus because what else are we going to bring to the table? Yeah, it's clapped out. But yet it's it's yet there are films that you can keep bringing into the discussion whenever the time is right because there's yes. so many. And that's what The Big Lebowski is. You can just use it as an example for so many things. Right. 
98, another one of my favorite movies of that year. It was definitely, The Big Lebowski was in my top 10 that year, and this was too, was Out of Sight. Steven Soderbergh, again. Apotheosis. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Um, and that's got a lot of, it's just got, it's a great movie. And I'm only, we're only mentioning these things, not because we don't have really time to talk about them. It's just, uh, these are films that if you haven't seen them and you're like, I need more neo-noir in my life. Well, there you go. Yeah. And by the way, and I just want to make a pitch that you, if, um, if you have seen, if you have seen Out of Sight or if you haven't, um, there's actually a great adaptation of it by the Max Fisher players. You can see it on YouTube. Oh, that's of Out of Sight? <laughs> That's that. pretty funny. Which is funny is because uh, ninety eight was when Rushmore was, uh, which came out. It didn't yes. really hit theaters till ninety nine, but it was one of those year end Oscar things, you know. Where they- well, if you if you got ninety seconds, you can watch the Max Fisher players adaptation of Out of Sight. I love it. Uh, okay, ninety nine Soderbergh. I like Out of Sight more, just personal enjoyment. But the ultimate neo noir from Steven Soderbergh, I think, is nineteen ninety nine's The Limey. Yes, Absolutely. masterful film. Yes. And and like even just so many of the small like little details, the performances, you know, really, really uh, terrific. Yeah. I mean, if you haven't seen that film, you gotta see it. Mm-hmm. I wish I could talk about all these films, but, uh, you know, look, uh, look at different podcasts. Somebody can go to the uh, Christopher Nolan podcast by uh, <laughs> A through Z. There's probably like 50 different ones dedicated to them, but Memento is a great yep. neo-noir. Yep. And um, Guy Pierce, great performance. Yeah, and that's that's two thousand, and then also two thousand. Another neo noir great one is Sexy Beast. Absolutely incredible, and I, I Roundtree, thought- your Roundtree. <laughs> <laughs> that feels like that movie just feels so you. Like I feel like that's the ultimate Bill movie. Uh, I saw it at the community theater in Dedham, Massachusetts. Max Fisher uh, players. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I know that the I've actually been to that movie theater that you're talking about in Dedham. Yeah, great theater. Great theater. Isn't that so the one it, it used to have the Bad Art Museum there? Yeah. And then <laughs> yes, it, then it that Bad Art Museum moved to the Somerville Theater. Did it really? Yes. I had no idea. I had yes. Idea. That was my Marv Albert. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, Ben Kingsley's performance, yeah, absolutely amazing, sexy yeah. beast, incredible. But actually, Ian McShane's performance also. Oh, great. Yeah. Well, that was like the first movie that I really remembered seeing him. Um, you know, he was in movies when he was younger. Great film, really, really terrific. It's, uh, one of these movies that you know, if if you ever want to do a great Ben Kingsley impersonation, that's the one you got to do. And Ray Winstone. Ray Winstone, great. Yeah. yeah. So that's a that's a fun movie. Um, Teal loves it. Teal loves six, Sexy Beast. Yeah. Um, okay. So 2001. I mean, I'm just, I think the point of mentioning all these films is look at all the films that uh, Criterion didn't even cover. Um, so 2001, a uh, few f- films. I mean, the, the great classic Mulholland Drive. Mm-hmm. Coen Brothers back at it uh, with a noir that's a new neo-noir because it's it's new, but it's the man who wasn't there. Very noir type film. Very, very noir. Absolutely. Love that movie. I, I It's very funny. I haven't seen it in a long time and I probably am due to revisit it because I remember being left a little cold by it at Ooh. the time. I yes. saw it in the theater. It was, I mean, the cinematography by Roger Deakins is insane. It is beautiful. Yes. 2001 also a movie I don't really like. It's definitely a new noir, Training Day. I actually like that film a lot. 
Do you now? Well, it's yes, your, that's I your really kind of thing. do. Yeah, it is my kind of thing. And you know, how many times do you have uh, Dr. Dre playing a corrupt cop? <laughs> a cameo. There you go. Yeah. Um, so I, I actually did like it. I believe David Ayers wrote the script. Okay. David Ayers, who directed the last Suicide Squad. Yes, yeah. yes. They're, they're, they're keep, yeah, they keep trying to get the David Ayers cut because the right. first one wasn't bad enough. They need to see more of the <laughs> bad one. Um, <laughs> another movie I didn't have on my list, but I'm just going to mention it because it, we've already passed it in 1998. Again, 98. And it's a film I didn't, it took me a while to catch up on it. And then I loved it when I saw it. It was uh, Zero Effect. Oh, I, I actually, real Bill Pullman. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. Jake Kasdan. Jake Kasdan, yeah, right. So this is the son of Lawrence Kasdan, and he does a great neo-noir here. The thing that's so interesting is that it really is just a remake of Sherlock Holmes' a scandal in uh, Bohemia. You know, that short story. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's got uh, young Kim Dickens in it, uh, Ryan O'Neill making a performance, uh, Ben, ben Stiller, Stiller. Uh, Steve Arlo, which is kind of his, uh, I guess his- uh, Watson. Right. Uh, Bill Perlman. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great film. And I don't think a lot of people know about it. So that's a great one. Uh, 2002, another movie that, I mean, again, I think I just really, really like neo-noir films because it was one of my favorites of that year. Uh, the Salt and Sea. Beautiful looking film. <laughs> that's what you have to say about it. <laughs> no, I, I think it's a beautiful looking film. I, I really enjoyed it at the time. I thought Val Kilmer gave a great performance. It just had a great atmosphere and vibe. And also Vincent D'Onofrio's performance. <laughs> So great. Yeah, I, I um and I would say classic neo noir, down to him playing like the trumpet, making his own soundtrack. Yes. Okay, so uh we're getting closer. We're getting closer to the last film on Criterion's list, but uh, a couple other movies uh, in two thousand two, uh De Palma's Femme Fatale. Mm-hmm. Which you guys covered. Yep, definite neo noir. Uh, two thousand four, great neo noir gets a little bit unfortunately the ending I think gets a little bit uh over the top, but for like most of its, like the first two thirds are just one of the best films of that year is Collateral. Tom Cruise getting yes. to be a bad guy and uh, Jamie Foxx, great as the cab driver. Yeah, I, I actually never saw it. What? Never seen it. Oh, geez, dude. Oh, geez, Bill. <laughs> what you doing to me? <laughs> you see a Collateral um, movie, but you won't see Collateral. Well, you know, I for a long time, I had a, a boycott Tom Cruise thing going. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, we all want to boycott him. But at the same time, we you know, you got to say that you enjoy some of his movies. But yeah, uh, I do. I absolutely all right. Do. Well, then there's your homework assignment. You should check out Collateral. It's good, except <laughs> right, for I don't really like the conclusion. It gets a little too over the top. And that brings us to 2005, where Criterion skipped like a whole decade of movies and goes right into uh, their last film, Ryan Johnson's Brick. Yeah, I, I actually think the film's like a, a small masterpiece. It is. I, I think it's absolutely incredible. And I actually think it's it's a kind of perfect capstone to their whole collection because it really captures so many of the elements, so many of the tropes of noir. And yet by brilliantly putting it into, um, instead of some sort of corrupt town, it's in a high school. And it's yeah. really, really, really incredibly well done. I think everything down to, and this was done on a low budget, but just even shows what you can do with kind of ingenuity in a low budget. I mean, all of the stuff 
with uh, the pin and how he's driven around and his mom and the basement and all of this stuff. That was the, that's is, the most hilarious is, part is, the, is the, the, drug, the drug kingpin like lives in the, has like his whole entourage in the basement and the mom's like, you guys need some like cookies? And- yeah, yeah. Do you want some juice? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, so that's what a great new, new noir does. And when you look at these examples is how does each of these films subvert the genre? Yeah. And this is a whole reinvention. On the one hand, high schoolers, you know, would never talk like this. Like they're all talking very like hip, that detective lingo stuff, like they're like they're right. out all, of the, a novel. all the Dashiell Hammett kind of stuff, you know? That like in the in the, in the, um, Miller's Crossing, you know? Exactly. What's the rumpus? Yes. And I love that, that a movie has the, you know, and Ryan Johnson as writer director really has the confidence. That's the word. It it is so assured of a debut that, I I mean, it's, it's really terrific. Well, you get the feeling like you get really into that rhythm of that dialogue. And in a strange way, it feels more realistic for a kid's movie. You said that, and I, I really turned that over. And finish that thought, because I think it's very interesting. Well, because a lot of times when you see a movie about high school, it's written by adults, you know, and how far off removed they are from being in high school, I don't yes. know. But they are always trying to capture the rhythm of whatever kids are. And sure, I think kids don't necessarily change all that much from, say, when we were kids. But what they're into, how they talk to each other because of the way that they're into pop culture and stuff is way different. And an adult can never really get into that. So sometimes if you want to really – you you create this whole world. Like in this particular world, this is how the kids are into. They're trying to like – they're all into like – pretending like they're in a neo-noir or something. Yes, and, so, and I think that's actually a brilliant observation. Go ahead, yeah. And so I love that. And and again, it's written so consistently throughout the film. Right. And then, it, you know, again, it has a very complex uh, mystery that it needs to solve. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you also have this very, um, you know, the ambiguity issue and the unreliable narrator who is played by... Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and I have to say this performance, because I had never seen this before. I didn't see it when it came out. I just saw it through this. And to me, the film was kind of a revelation because I, I had remembered him from Third Rock, uh, <laughs> Third Rock from the Sun. Yeah, this was like, this was a, a reintroduction of him. And I've been a fan of his because of this movie. Yeah. Well, I got to say, is that I remember Third Rock from the Sun. The next thing I know, he's showing up in Inception. And I'm like, wait, what? That, that's the kid from Inception. And he's showing up in these parts where he has a little bit more heft. And I was like, it was, it was a little jarring to me at first. But this is kind of the missing piece of the jigsaw puzzle that I didn't get because his performance is so strong, is so confident. And he is really the kind of linchpin that holds together the movie in terms of following him and him piecing everything together. Otherwise, you know, and and that's sort of the way that detective films works. We really count on the detective, you know, to kind of like explain to the audience, this is what happened and this is the missing pieces and to kind of spell it out when you accuse somebody. You know, the ambiguity is what we see on the screen, what is real and what is not real. And one of that aspect is his sort of confidant character, the brain. Right. Well, he's called the brain. And you never see them talking with anybody else around. Right. They're always isolated. And there is this question of whether or not the brain exists or it's in his head. Interesting. I I had just taken it for granted that he was a real character. And you can, and there's no definitive answer. So you could that he's one of his friends or 
the fact that some of the people he interacts with that help him get through this mystery could be just in his head. Right. It, it could be part of a hangover from the whole um, fight club thing. Right. Yeah. And he's a guy that he's, you know, he's obsessed still with his girlfriend who broken up and now she's dead. Right. And, and so he's trying to solve that. And so it's a great mystery and it definitely, it, 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 I think it unfolds in a good pace. Right. Great performances. And again, good visual style. And you could just tell yes. right off the bat that Ryan Johnson was definitely, this wasn't going to be his only movie. No, no, absolutely not. I, I have a an aside that you can cut if you like, but um, whenever I see Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I always think about who his grandfather was. Uh, his grandfather was a director. He directed... Um, Pillow Talk, Rock Hudson and Doris Day. No way. His name is Michael Gordon. And he- Oh um, my God. Yeah. And he also directed Cyrano de Bergerac with Jose Ferrer. That's a, see, you, you want me to cut this? This is good no, stuff. Well, you didn't know? Well, so my, the reason I, I know, know this is because, so uh, I, I went and took a summer class at UCLA when I was in high school. And so his grandfather taught for many years at UCLA in the theater department and, um, so he came in as a guest lecturer because he directed all the, the campus productions. And he did a, a, a play that summer, I remember, of The, the Tender Trap, uh, which is a bit like a Frank Sinatra, Debbie Reynolds movie that was that was very funny. But in, in kind of continuing my series of awkward store encounters with celebrities, um, I was sitting in the audience, like in the lecture hall, and all of a sudden, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's grandfather, Michael Gordon, just starts yelling at me. Oh. When I'm sitting there, he's like, and I say this to you, the young man sitting in the row over there looking incredibly bored. Oh, <laughs> this is probably his shtick. Every, every, every uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the shtick was, but I'm just like sitting there in a lecture hall. And that's one of those like I'm looking around like who? Who's like, yes, you. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, yeah. Did you have your uh, Cutter's Way eye patch on? <laughs> you hobbled out of there. <laughs> what are you gonna do with the time yeah. you have left? You know what I said, Rich? I'm hungry. I'm hungry, Rich. I'm starving. <laughs> I used that uh, as the uh, opening of episode two. I remember. Uh, that's so great. You didn't even have to go into the court building. But anyway, so so now whenever I see Joseph Gordon Levin, I'm like, hey, his grandfather just started screaming at me for no reason. Yeah. <laughs> great, great story, Bill. I'll see if yeah. I include it. Um okay, so that ends that ends we did it. We went through all twenty-six criterion films. Uh that's pretty amazing. It only took us five episodes. And uh there's a whole bunch more. Maybe if we decided if, if you if you end up going, Jimmy, I got some time when we want to do a episode six, we got a several more movies afterwards that we could talk about. But we are gonna talk about one movie that a listener heard one of our episodes and they sent a message on Twitter and said that they just saw this film, The Kid Detective, and that they thought it would be a very interesting pairing with Brick. And so, of course, you know, a listener says, hey, movie, you should watch. Well, what am I going to do? I'm going to watch it, right? I got the stars. It's on stars. Or maybe you can also purchase it on demand. You, you can buy it for $13 now. You can buy you it. You want to add it to your- yeah, if you want to add it to your library for $13. Standard or high def? Okay. Your Billy, choice. <laughs> Billy, I'm sure, doesn't know how to you know rent something online, but I'm sure you could rent it for maybe $4. But uh, there's this movie, The Kid Detective. It's from 2020. Um, you know, it's not a big budget movie or anything. And it's 
got Adam Brody. I know. Get excited. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's got some various other uh, names. But uh, its director and writer is this guy, Evan Morgan. And this movie really kind of took me by surprise. It's definitely a neo-noir. Uh, it's got a very dry, deadpan sense of humor. Uh, and right. there's a lot of humor in it. I mean, there's humor in Brick to a degree. This has got some funny stuff in it. And it actually has a little kind of like zero effect. Definitely has got some humor in it. But in a neo-noir, the humor's kind of tapered. And it, the premise is great. It's this kid who was a kid detective, which kind of like Encyclopedia Brown. Right. And he's solving all these cases around the town, right? Goofy. And people are like, you know, they uh, like this. Well, I, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but, uh, you know, kids would come to him and he was he was great at solving all these mysteries. And he would like, you know, get free ice cream for life at the local candy shop and stuff. But then a real serious case happens. And this one girl goes missing, uh, like the principal's daughter. And he wants to, you know, he, he, he like liked her as a kid. So he wanted to help find her and he couldn't find her. Right. And so his whole world comes crumbling down. And because of this incident, he has arrested development. So at age 32, he can't, he cannot put the past away. And everybody thinks of him as this like sad town freak. And he has a detective agency where he just takes nickel and dime cases to solve. And so a kid comes in and wants to find out that like a classmate said that they went and they got to play uh, baseball with the Mets or something over the summer. And he wants to find out if he's real, if they're really doing. And he's like, how much are you going to be? He's like going to pay him $50 to find out. He picks up the phone. He calls the kid's mom in front of him. He's like, hey, did uh, your son play with the Mets this summer? And she's like, no. And he's like, okay. And he's like, no, he didn't play with the Mets. Like, it's like that kind of stuff. And then, and then of course, then, then a real case drops in his lap between a, a out of the school. past, out of the past, something reemerges. Exactly. And a, and a, and a high school girl hires him to find out who, who how is that this boyfriend of hers who supposedly commits suicide, Diddy. Uh, and it leads to a journey that's very entertaining. And then it gets, I'd say that this movie pushes a boundary that I didn't think a movie like this was going to push. And then it even goes further. And I think that the criticism that this movie's gotten is that it gets very dark, which is unexpected, but I like it. I like that it gets dark. And so overall, I, I think this movie's a bit of a hidden gem. Uh, I saw the trailer. I've read a, a bit about it, but I, I didn't get to, the chance to watch it. But it's something that I definitely, when I'm able to, I will. Yeah, I, I got to thank this uh listener of that episode i don't know if they're a regular listener of the show but hey if you're not uh you know subscribe on apple Podcasts, spotify or go to stuffweseen.com and you can find all our episodes there listener but i i really thanks for the for the shout out and recommendation because it was a great way to cap and it, it is interesting that this person with the criterion's offerings are finding pairings and i think that's what's kind of cool is that within the 26 films you can find pairings and then there are pairings that you can make on your own right billy correct I correct the bunny the, bun, the, the people are coming to kidnap the bunny in the background <laughs> bunny's been very quiet i'm a little maybe too quiet that's, that's right when they come through the door i'm going to start identifying like everything i see there you go and you can track them down jimmy okay you and liam neeson yeah. right gonna, right okay that in the last reduction <laughs> the bunny that's sneaks right. up behind you bill i've been taught well we we have been taunting its manhood what can i tell you okay um but uh yeah so i mean there it is we've closed it out we've we've done uh five sealed episodes the deal the jimmy know, we, we sealed have. the deal yeah no i mean i'm definitely uh i'm proud of us <laughs>
No, this has been a lot of fun, uh, and it's been great. I mean, it's always just great. I mean, we're, we're old pals, and it is fun to, uh, as they say, shoot the shit, I guess, um, yes. and talk yes. films, and this is kind of how we would do it back in our days when we would hang out, and so this is a fun forum, and now it sounds like it's coming to a close because you're going to get busy, and uh, you know, now we have to just hold our breath and wonder and wait if Teal will come <laughs> back or not. Well, I, I, I have absolute faith that he will, and I, as a uh, devoted listener, I look forward to it. Yeah, and it, and if we and if we play our cards right, right? If I've done this correctly, and Teal does come back, you, the listener, if you if you listen to every episode, it, it will feel like nothing is amiss because by the time this fifth episode rolls out, we're at the end of August, and then hopefully Teal comes back, and then we get there, and then you know we've gotten episodes. People aren't going to be waiting a month, right? Right. Look at us. Yeah, I'm stocked a lot of a lot of steaks in the fridge. As, uh, a lot of steaks in the fridge. Okay, as Val Kilmer said, in heat. In heat, correct. Right. I stole your line from the, from before we started the podcast. Um, okay. So, any last thoughts, words before uh, we, we 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 part ways? I take no, my leave of Jimmy. You? Jimmy, thanks again. Really appreciate it. Yes, I know that. Again, you always say you enjoy being a listener more than you enjoy being a co-host, but. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Um, I enjoy having you as both. <laughs> I like when you're just a listener and you you send messages back to me about something that you liked that you heard. But I also like it when you know we get yeah to yeah. I like to, I like to, I like to bust chops. There you go. That's, That's what it fun. is. I like busting chops with you. <laughs> I know so you do. You have, know. A, you have <laughs> pretty thick skin for busting chops. I mean, l- last uh, week I tried to make you out as uh, somebody who is uh, anti LGBTQ plus. Uh, what 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 can I what can I say? You know that's uh, <laughs> so. well. It's what I said. It's completely not not you at all. So yeah. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. But look, um, but like I said, I just enjoy busting shops. It's always great. And um, are, by the way, I'm just going to ask. I'll ask on air. Are you going to have uh, possibly other guest hosts in between, or you think um, it's going to go right to Teal? I, that's a good question. There is somebody who's been on our show before, and he is—he's uh, away. He's going to be away in California for a couple of weeks. And when he comes back, we're supposed to sit down and uh, get on the mic and talk. Um, and uh, that's Michael McWilkin. He—he uh, he hasn't been on in about a year. Uh, we almost always talk about drive-ins, but I, I think that uh, we got some other things in mind. So hopefully, uh, gets in. As a matter of fact, we might talk about Japanese noir, which is still a, a oh, series good. kicking on and. Criterion, and we might talk about other things. As a matter of fact, that was a great episode with him. I really enjoyed that. Well, hopefully, you'll enjoy another if he can come on. Um, and uh, and you out there, listener, I'm not a you know, I, I don't have to know you personally for you to be on the show. So if you're like, oh my god, I, I want to go and, and, and talk uh, movies and whatnot, well, just get in touch. Feedback at stuffweseen.com, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll get you on. All right. All right. Thanks, Jimmy. Bye bye. Bye-bye, Billy, and bye-bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to these episodes on Neo-Noir. Thank you.